You are now tuned into the sounds of the Course, I'm gonna say is Brooklyn in the house. You know, I'm gonna say that, right? Yes. All right. All right. <laughs> all right. So here we go. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna let you finish, but the Bronx is the best borough. I, knew, uh, I, I know uh, the, the birth of hip hop, right, Angel? No, not the birth of no hip hop. What are you guys talking about? Well, you know, I'm from the West Coast. I'm from I'm from Long Beach, Compton area. You so, guys you know. took a long time to come into the game. Okay. Okay. Whatever. No. <laughs> We, but we perfected it though, you know what I mean? Oh, okay. We, we Whatever you say. Who's come out of Cali in a while? I think you guys I, both know the truth here, but I'll just, uh, Bronx. Is, I'll just... Bronx is nothing compared to Brooklyn, and that's why oh. we are the county of kings. Okay. I am Paul Amadeus Lane, and you're listening to United on Wheels. Hello, and welcome to the United on Wheels podcast. I'm your host, Paul Amadeus Lane. I am so happy to have you on this edition of the show today. Before we bring on our very special guest, I would like to make sure that everyone knows out there how much we love and care about you, especially during COVID-19. So please stay safe, be well, and please listen, listen to the authorities out there. I wanted to talk about our show today in a sense of not giving up on your dreams. Maybe you have a story of something that you wanted to achieve, but you felt that maybe I won't be able to do it. It kind of reminds me when I was in broadcasting school. After I graduated, I wanted to get a job. I wanted to work in the industry. But I kept running into roadblocks. It was because of the wheelchair. It was because of fear of the unknown that potential employers out there they didn't know what to expect with me. And it got to the point where I almost gave up, but I'm so glad I didn't. After I got my first job in the media field, I was interviewed by a local a newspaper. And they said, can you come up with a quote that can help others out there to not give up on their dreams and to continue fighting and pushing forward? So I was like, man, how am I going to come up with something that, that's going to be, you know, really inspirational and really help ones to be inspired? So I had to go back to like my old club days when I had to think of things, you know, to try to get someone's number or get them to dance with me. So I came up with this phrase right here that never allow fear of the unknown prevents you from doing great things. And we are so happy to be joined by our very special guest who did not let fear, did not let obstacles prevent her from doing incredible things. Join me in welcoming Andrea Dazzle to the show. Andrea, how are you, my dear? I'm doing well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's an honor to have you. I just want you to know that you are becoming a hero to us all. And I just want you to know that. No, I thank you. I thank you for that. But um, I don't see myself as a hero. I don't, I don't want to be a hero. Um, if it comes along with the title, then, you know, so be it. But it's not how I view myself at all. Well, you know, I, I definitely um, am inspired by your, by your humility, because it, it really just adds to just how important you are for the community and for ones out there, especially in the field that you're in. Now, before we talk about how you were just uh, being an asset to humanity <laughs> during this time, talk about your disability, if you don't mind. What happened to make you a wheelchair user? So I was diagnosed with transverse myelitis at the age of five. 
and I uh, gradually got weaker over time. And by the time I was 12 years old, I uh, no longer was walking, full-time wheelchair user. Um, not even in races or KFOs or any of the above. And for anyone that doesn't know what transverse myelitis is, it's a neurological disorder of the spinal cord. It's literally your body attacks the spinal cord and uh, can affect any part of the body. But for me, it affected T10 and left me an incomplete paraplegic. And talk about how you had to make adjustments uh, just to go through everyday life. Uh, to really help ones to to visualize just some of the things you had to go through? I mean, as a five-year-old, I don't think my mind actually wrapped around it because you're a child, right? Your whole instinct as a child before you hit teenage years is to have fun and play. So I don't think my disability affected me then. I think it really affected me when I lost my complete ability to walk at 12. Being in those preteen years, having to try to identify a sense of self among other things, right? Teenage, teenage years is impactful, right? You're learning who you are, who you want to be, what do you want to do? You're in high school, you're dealing with the dramas of, of teenage life and then throwing on a disability. I think it's a, it's a whirlwind of emotions and I think everyone can relate to whether you're a teenager or an adult, um, how disability can be one of those things that can either send you down the rabbit hole <laughs> and be completely depressed and not want to get out of your house or you know it can put you in the limelight of not so bad elephant in the room for me that's kind of how it went down like you know high school for me i had a lot of friends i was miss popularity um and in some ways i think that's what shaped how i viewed my disability you know it wasn't an obstacle anymore because my friends didn't see it as an obstacle. My friends saw it as, okay, we've got it. But I think that still was a paradigm to how I saw myself and what I wanted for myself going forward, just past the teenage years into adulthood. And there's always a shift of thought when you're up against something new. And when did you know what you what you wanted to do when you became an adult your career move when did you say this is what I want to pursue a career in nursing uh, a career in nursing I did not want to be a nurse I could tell you that much <laughs> when I was a child I said to my doctors that I was going to be a lawyer so that I can come back and sue them for all <laughs> the pain that they put me through okay I promised that I was going to get that law degree then I said, you know what, how do I become someone that doesn't inflict pain, right? So doctors inflicting all this pain on me, why don't I become a doctor and figure out the cure to masking pain, right? Like, this has to be a thing. And then I went to school for biology and neuroscience, and I was on track to go to med school. And then I was just auditing classes, seeing if I really liked it. Med school is a huge investment. Uh, we all know as a disability community that that is a paycheck that we don't usually get. So yeah. thinking about that, it's like, you know, that's a big commitment to want to put on myself or my family, you know, or even friends to even help me through that. And auditing the classes for med school, I realized all these doctors treat a disease process. I'm going to look at people like they are a disease, whether you're just a spinal cord injury, whether you're illness, you're just a disease process. And I don't want to treat people like that because I know what that feels like. I know what the opposite side of that is. And the only field in healthcare that doesn't do that is nursing. So, you're absolutely right. Yeah. You know, I went into nursing, you know, thinking that I can give someone with a disability a voice. I can give people a voice because I know what it's like on the opposite end, not only just for, uh, a disease process like a spinal cord injury or illness but also just giving them like you know I've been through being in a hospital I've been through getting poked and prodded when I didn't want to or being embarrassed or my vulnerabilities out for the world to see and no one's listening I've been there how can I give that back to someone I love it so, <laughs> yeah that's how nursing was born in my heart I, I love it I love it and 
It, it kind of reminds me, uh, before I had my accident, I was a first responder. I worked in LA County as an EMT. I worked in South Central Los Angeles. So we dealt with a lot of, a lot of tragedies out there. Mm-hmm. And then once I had my accident, I went from being a caregiver to someone now needing care. Mm-hmm. And it really opened my mind to a lot of things I never thought of when I was working before my accident. And then we have with your experience, Andrea, you went from being a person who needed some care mm-hmm. because of a disability, now a person who is being the caregiver and the nurturer and the understander. Talk about that interesting dynamic and how that helped you to be amazing at what you do. I mean, I'm still learning, right? I think that there's a there's a shift when nursing schools didn't want me. You know, even just becoming a nurse was a process in its of in and of itself, right? And here I am, two years out of my degree, um, held four or five different positions in nursing and realizing that in order to be the caregiver, I have to accept one, my own biases to healthcare, right? I have to accept what I'm facing personally and what I'm facing professionally so that my patients and who I'm encountering don't get a biased opinion or don't get a very harsh outlook because the point is to change the way the healthcare system treats someone with a disability. You can diagnose a disability, but you can't treat them, right? You could give them the pill, but you can't treat them, right? How are you turning around the whole situation to include the person, the person's social aspects, how that person is going to deal with their disability going home every night or going home from rehab or being on bed rest for six months at home. Like how do we encompass that entire system when the whole process is to get you in and out as quickly as possible? Who's listening? How many many people have that, has that person spoken to about their healthcare and how do we actually have a streamlined response for them? Right, everything has to be tailored to them and you, it just, it shifts, the dynamics shift so much for every person that I think it's very hard for the able caregiver to really be trying to speak on the terms of someone who has the disability. Tell me about it. Hey, I, feel this, <laughs> I feel the same way, Andrea, even when we see like uh, folks on TV trying to play us, you know what I mean? <sighs> folks with disabilities, you know? And I'm like, wait a minute, we're funny enough. We could be actors. We could be actresses. You know, we can, we can, we can, we can do this because we, we live the experience. So exactly. I think you are spot on when it comes to that. And let's talk about when you got out of nursing school. What was the first job that you had as a nurse? Oh, right out of nursing school, I was a camp health director. Uh, I worked for a respite care camp. It's a camp that goes all year round. I was going in for their summer term as long as, as well as having respite uh, kids and adults come in for the the summer, where they would stay on the on the campus for at least a month or so. Uh, and I ran what it was seventy five campers uh, every week or every two weeks coming in. Wow. And like that rotation of care. And these campers were all special needs, not just, you know, able-bodied campers or young kids. I had a range of young kids to older, older adults uh, with all types of ailments, whether it was CP, spinal bif, uh, those that were non-functioning, high-level autism, autism um, even mental challenges that were nonverbal and had no way of really having any communication. So it was that that set the bar. <laughs> I was like, okay, this this is where I this is where I'm at. We're gonna go keep going up. So, yeah. I love it. I love it. And we know before COVID nineteen and the outbreak, you were working at a school. Yes. In the, in Lower Manhattan. Yes. Talk about the experience of of working working in the, in the school. Was it a special needs school or was it a school or was it a mixed school? as far as the students were concerned? 
the school tailors to students who are called twice exceptional. So they're either uh, on the autism spectrum or they have extremely high IQs where they cannot focus in a traditional school setting. Um, usually their uh, curriculums are based with more hands-on dynamics, whether that be on a computer, whether that be like one-on-one -on -one, uh, teaching skills. And it's a private school, so you know these teachers are dedicated to their students in a way that most traditional public schools would never see. Uh, my kids throughout the day, you know, they're they're going through a whole schedule, and you know, when a schedule breaks for anyone. It could be kind of daunting, but when a schedule breaks for someone who has autism or someone who's on a very structured schedule to keep them focused and in line, it really throws them off. So starting the school year with me, seeing me in a chair, I'm short, I'm at their level. Mm -hmm. uh, there's an understanding that's already in place, me rolling into a room looking for a student, right? Like I'm not there to tower over them. I'm not there to intimidate them. I'm not giving off this sense of fear or anguish over taking a medication. Like there's a connection that's already built. You know, and I can, I can tell um, just by speaking with you the, the short, short time, how, how ones can be drawn to you and they can, they can um, sense the healer in you, you know, not only the healer of, of a physical um, situation, but also mental and emotional too, that you can put them at ease. And it's great that you're able to use your experiences to help out. This school year started off as any other school year, but then COVID-19 happened. What happened to your job at the school? So my job went remote. Uh, all of our kids are learning online. Uh, all of the admin staff are online. I didn't lose the job per se, but I'm not working. I'm not going in to physically take care of anyone or dispense medications. And New York State being the epicenter of this entire pandemic and being a metro urban area, I knew that uh, I'm going to be home. I need to get out and help. And I don't know how that, that what that was going to look like, how that was going to happen. But the call for nurses to come and help was loud. Mm -hmm. And loud enough for me to say, well, if it's that loud, they'll accept me anywhere. <laughs> Now, have you tried to um, get jobs in hospitals before you worked at, at the schools and the, the camps and things like that, or are you just never tried that avenue? Oh, no, I definitely tried uh, straight out of school. Actually, before I even graduated, I was applying to jobs that would be in a hospital setting. I was applying all throughout the New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania area, uh, 76 interviews for acute care. And I say that, you know, not because I'm a bad interviewer, you know, 76 interviews, you might think, okay, maybe she's a terrible interviewer and she just can't get past. Mm -hmm. This was me getting past the nursing recruiter and then sitting in front of a nurse manager to a unit. Um, and I'm not going to discredit any, any organization or any nurse manager, you know, having a disability, being, you know, a pioneer, not that I'm the first either. I'm, I'm a pioneer. Yes. With a, a nurse in a wheelchair, but these nurse managers don't know. Mm -hmm. Just like the same adversities I face getting into nursing school, staying in nursing school, getting my degree, it's the same thing I was facing on a professional level going into acute care setting and hoping that I can be a nurse at the bedside. I mm -hmm. had nurses, huh? No, no, go, go ahead. I'm sorry, I mean to cut you off. I had nurses telling me that I would never be a nurse at the bedside, mm -hmm. ever, like even in an interview. And everybody's probably thinking, well, isn't that a lawsuit? Isn't that against, you know, some law that the thing is, it could be, but what does bringing a lawsuit actually do for me? It doesn't get me the job. That's true. That's a very good point. But, but keep in mind that the EEOC is definitely there to advocate for us in that setting. But by the time that happens, we probably got a job somewhere else already. You know, the loopholes to that EOC thing, like, you know, what you actually have to have in yeah. place, things that need to be done. 
you're going in for an interview. You're not thinking to record the whole interview. You're right. already, <laughs> you're already panicking about the fact that you have to be on. You have to yeah. figure out how to adapt to the questions that are being thrown at you. Think on the spot. That's stressful in itself. <laughs> Let's go ahead and throw on record this interview just in case they discriminate against me. And they don't just blatantly discriminate either. Okay, it's more along the lines of how are you going to do CPR? Yeah, um, they're pretty smooth what, with it, right? They're pretty smooth right. With it, right? Like, and and these are valid questions. Mm-hmm. You know, they have valid questions to how I'm going to do something. It's their unit. These nurse managers have to make sure the dynam- the dynamics of a nurse coming in is going to fit well with the team dynamics. Are you going to bring the same skill set? You know, everyone says everybody say it too. Is that um, how do you expect me to get experience if I can't get the job? Absolutely. How do you expect me to know if you don't give me the job? Yeah. How about you give me a trial period? Can I have two weeks? <laughs> like nothing. Yeah. Now you you definitely you definitely make it make a whole lot of sense with that. So you you put in these applications. Um, you're not getting any bites or getting some bites, but not, not, not the major bites out there. Talk about, if you can, any particular situation that happened where you felt just the, the shade they were throwing at you to not bring you in uh, as a nurse. Do you have any, any particular time where you can share with us? Oh yeah. So I, there's actually two occasions, but one occasion in particular stands out. I went for an interview at a major hospital system here in New York. We'll leave it like that. And went in for this interview, sat with a nurse recruiter, went through all of my credentials. And she says to me, well, maybe you can apply for the, um, the clinical practice instead of bedside. And I said, well, that's not what I apply for. That's not what I'm interviewing for. You know, I'm interested in this for a certain reason. And I don't want to divulge too much because, you know, obviously liabilities, but definitely um, they sent me an email within like four hours telling me that the position was closed. I said, okay. So if the position's closed, I go online and the position is still posted. Okay, maybe 24 hours this position will come off. Right. Uh, went online every day, the position is still posted. Now I get a text from a friend of mine that I went to school with, nursing school with. And she's like, hey, I'm going for this position at this place. It's the same time slot, same requisition number, same everything that I had just went for that I was told that the position was closed not only 48 hours before. And that gutted me. It gutted me. And she was having the same interview with the same person that interviewed me. And I'm like, I'm being told that this position is closed. I called HR. They told me that the position's closed to my name. They're like, oh, what's your name? You know, what was your requisition number? And they looked it up and they were like, no, the position has closed. So now to hear that a peer of mine is going for the same interview, same requisition number, same unit, same time slot. It's like, what did I do wrong? What didn't I have that would have made me more worthy of this position? The person that was going for the job interview after me didn't have all the a the acronyms, right? So advanced life, uh, life saving certification. They didn't have a PAL certification. I had these things. Like, why is she getting this interview? And then she got the job. And I was just like, man. Not only was I gutted from her just getting the interview, yeah. I went and I was gutted again when she was offered the position. Gosh, I, I can only imagine how you felt, Andrea, with that. You know, here you are. You know, you got the credentials. Mm-hmm. You know, you got the paper to co-sign to your skills, and then uh, to have them do that—I mean, that is just that's just dirty and that's wrong. Yeah. And what was it inside you? that made you not want to give up but to say hey i'm a trailblazer so i'm gonna keep going um i don't know if there was anything in particular besides the fact that i just knew in my heart that i wanted to be at the bedside 
I've already given respite care a chance, you know, case management. Uh, we all deal with it with, you know, our disabilities. We have a case manager or, you know, an insurance company manager that calls us to check in. And I hated that. I think that gutted me as a profession in nursing, like, you know, all these denials that we have to call and tell our patients they can't get stuff that they need. I didn't want that. You know, school nursing is great, but it wasn't pushing my skill level. It's not pushing my, you know, I, I'm the type of person that once I've mastered something, I need to go on to the next thing. And I mastered school nursing, I felt like in two, in two weeks. I was like, okay, I got this. Because think about it, when you have a disability, your mind is going a thousand miles a minute every single day, trying to make sure that not only are you staying healthy, did you eat, did you pee, did you do this? Like, do you have people that you need in your alignment to be able to go to the store? Like, there's so many things that we're constantly thinking about that as a nurse, it's like, okay, school nursing, got it, X, Y, and Z is crossed off, my kids are okay, do they have a fever, like, there's this checklist in your head that you're going through every minute, and I'm like, okay, I mastered that, cool, got this, and it's not that I don't love it, I love the kids, it's just, I needed something more, there needed to be something more, my heart was that I needed to be at the bedside, I needed to be learning, I needed to be in front of people who are at their worst, you know, most vulnerable positions in life, and telling them that, you know what, life doesn't end in this bed. That is so true. And we're so glad that you did not give up, allow that to stop you. Talk about when you finally got the call to work bedside, work in a hospital setting. When did that happen? <laughs> this happened like a month now. It's been a month, almost a month super exciting uh covid happened right it took a pandemic to hire the seated nurse <laughs> yeah it, it, you know it, it's one of those things where andrea um all the things you could have done for hospitals even before the pandemic they mm -hmm. missed out on your skill set when you got that call you know what were some of the things that went through your mind? Did, did, did you like have like a, a fast forward moment saying, wow, I'm finally going to get it. I had the, the ball's going to drop any moment. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this is way too good to be true. Okay. So let's rewind a little bit, right? So this pandemic is happening in New York city, the call for mass nurses to come to the bedside. We need your help. And there was a, a number that went around for a particular hospital system. And they were like, uh, we need nurses. You know, as long as you have a bachelor's degree, you have some experience, we will take you. I applied. They called me back. They're like, okay, you just send in all these, paper, all these papers so I have to get credentialed online. I've gotten credentialed. I've passed, I've passed the first round. Now they send me into HR. HR is like, okay, you've passed the second round. Go get your ID. Okay, great. So HR has seen me. Nurses have not. HR mm -hmm. is not going to turn me away because HR knows better, right? Yeah. So I go and I get my ID. Great. Ball hasn't dropped yet. I have to report to work on Monday. Monday comes. I don't have a report anywhere placed. Nothing, nothing comes in the email. So I'm like, all right, I'm waiting. Maybe the ball dropped. Tuesday comes and they're like, nope, you have to report to work tomorrow. This is where you're reporting. Get to work. It's orientation day. I'm in front of all these nurses. They're all looking at me and they're all, and I'm all looking at them. And they're like, okay, you sit here at this computer, Andrea. This is what you need. This is what you do. Did it. Okay. I have to report to this hospital when? Next week, Monday. Okay. I, every minute I'm thinking the ball's going to drop. Every person that I'm coming in front of, I'm thinking the ball's going to drop. They're going to be like, oh, we don't need your services. Right. I get to the hospital. I show up there for my night shift, get onto the floor. The nurse manager sees me and she's like, she take taken aback. And I'm like, I'm here. They're like, okay, how long are you here for? And I'm like, I'm on a, on a contract. I'm here as long as you need me, but I'm full-time hours. And they're like, great. Then the nursing director comes to the floor and pulls me off the floor. I'm like, the ball's about to drop. <laughs> the ball is dropping right now. She doesn't tell me collect my things, but she tells me, you know, she's off the floor right now. And I'm like, you didn't pull anybody else off the floor. You pulled right. me. Here we are. Um, and she just looks at me and she's like, I don't think you can be on the floor 
because I believe you're going to be an infection risk. And I just, I don't know if it was like my eyes because I'm masked up, right? So I don't know if it was my eyes or my body language that just came off as like, not today. Like this is not like that. The Brooklyn came out of me. I was about to ask you that. Did, did, did the Brooklyn come out of you? <laughs> the Brooklyn, the New Yorker, the every no that I've ever gotten turned into like this fireball that like came shooting out of my eyes. Like you're kidding me, right? Like I'm more of an infection risk while you're standing up there looking over people and people are coughing in your face, but I'm below people. People can't cough in my face. You're the infection risk. Like. I didn't say that, but no, I said like it, right? it, until the vibe was there. <laughs> and I was like, no, I think I'm fine. I've already went through infection protocols. I had to do it through nursing school. I've had to do it through all of my jobs. Um, if there's an issue and we encounter an issue, let's make sure that we communicate together instead of making an assumption that I can't be on the floor. You know, and then she kind of, stepped off of it a little bit and she allowed me to go back to the floor you know that the ball dropped the ball got picked up and the ball the ball got passed right back it was like no this is not happening you're not taking away my dream you said not today <laughs> no not today not any day not ever like no that's what I, that's what i'm talking about <laughs> and when you are able to get this job during this um this pandemic i'm sorry since you're able to get this job uh, during the pandemic of, yeah. of COVID-19, has there been any, any trepidation or fear uh, working during this time? Or did you ever second guess taking this job? I didn't second guess it. I think that's just the care in me, the nurture, the healer in me. It wasn't to second guess it. Um, I, I was watching posts online from the spinal cord injury community, watching from the TM community, all of these people are so nervous. You know, we have compromised immune systems, so to speak, right? Um, but I also was like, I don't know if I have a compromised immune system. This has never been a proven fact for me particularly. So I just have to take the risk. Whatever happened will happen. And I will do all the precautions that I can. Uh, and just and hope and pray for the best, but I'm needed and I'm going. And what has been some of the feedback from your patients when they, when they see you? I think patients and colleagues both have this different perception now of someone with a disability, right? Because my older patients that are coming in the room that love to tell me that I belong in the bed and I turn it around on them and I was like, but the irony, the irony is I'm taking care of you. Right. So therefore, who's winning? Right. Like I get to joke around with my my older adults, you know, and I had a, a younger kid um, recently who. He had an overdose during this pandemic and I was taking care of him as his nurse, you know, I go in the room and you can tell that he's he's really down and out. And I just took the two minutes to say to him, like, listen. I'm rolling in this room. I had to understand that I had a purpose that got me to this point where now I'm in front of you taking care of you. I was like, maybe that, maybe that's a sign. Maybe that's something for you to realize that you have a purpose too. You know, just being able to, to connect on a human level that's not normally conveyed when you're an able-bodied nurse or caregiver right you you can't can't talk on someone's disability just because you treat them with that disability right here i am rolling in the room this kid doesn't know what i've been through in life but he sees me in the chair and he automatically knows that i've been through something mm -hmm. right so there's that connection regardless and you know i think that for him if I see him when I go back into work or if I don't see him that just having that connection becomes the game changer even for my colleagues right my colleagues are seeing that I'm able to do the job without asking for any additional help you know I'm not screwing up their time I'm, I'm aiding and helping and making sure that my team is cohesive throughout the night 
you know, stepping in where help is needed. And their perceptions are changing now too, because if you are only seeing the negative to the disability and not seeing the positive or seeing where someone with a disability can jump in and help, then hey, right? Now their 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 perceptions are changing too. I was just about to ask you that have you gotten that yet? Because I know like in my in my profession, one's always be like, Well, if Paul can do it, you guys should be able to do it too. They Paul's putting you to shame. Have you gotten that yet, Andrea? I haven't got, I have gotten that for like, you know, the, the new nurses that are coming to the floor too, you know, they, they try to compare me to them. Like Andrea's rolling around left, right, center, like a ping pong ball, because that's how our, our, our unit is right now. Like you're just back and forth all over the place. And, you know, you have some new nurses coming and they're like, they don't know what to do. You know, it's like, you just have to jump in and do, you have to jump in and do. And here I am, like, you know, I'm doing it. I'm not even, you know, if I need ask a question I ask a question but I'm in it and I've had nurses come up to me and say you know that's the best they've ever seen gotten a handoff and received the patient I've gotten nurses tell me you know that they weren't expecting that I would be able to commit the way that I've committed to my patients you know I went from having four patients on my first day to having 13 patients on my fourth day right it's like Andrea's got it. She could do it. Give it to her. <laughs> like, Absolutely. And, and and that takes us to the next question. Talk about the environment that, that you work in and your responsibilities and the floor that you, that you work on. Are you actually, um, do you have, ever have to go down to the emergency room uh, where the action is with the COVID patients or, you know, talk about the environment that, that you uh, particularly work in at the hospital. So my hospital, it's not just the emergency room. Usually they're trying to get COVID out of the emergency room, right? Because you want to try to keep it as open as possible for those coming in. Um, I'm on a floor that that is trying to stay non-COVID. Um, we are treating everyone as though they have COVID, but we're trying to stay non-COVID. So our patients are coming to our floor, uh, are usually on a rule out. Like, do they have COVID? Or do they not have COVID? And that's because the patients that don't have COVID need to kind of be segregated from those that do in order for them not to get it. Uh, my, my floor is dealing with a lot of uh, everyday health issues, right? Uh, diabetes, heart, heart disease, heart congestion, heart failure. Um, our elderly patients that have a multitude of different ailments are coming in. We have patients that are on vents that need particular respiratory care that's not related to COVID. Um, and it's, it's a full floor. So if you're recovering from COVID uh, and you have other illnesses, you might end up on my floor. Or if you have COVID and we don't have another bed somewhere in the somewhere in the hospital you're staying on our floor in an isolation room um you know or you if you have a exacerbation of a pulmonary disorder you'll be on my floor and i'm there taking care of you too so wow. there's a mix there's a it's a big it's a big mix of patients uh and a huge learning curve and you got a lot of responsibilities too and, and how do the doctors uh, treat you because I know we know how the nurses treated you and everything but how, how do the doctors uh, treat you um I am working night shift so I don't usually see the attendings which is great I see the uh, physician's assistants and all of them and myself are working cohesively which is it works out they know if I'm calling them uh they know that I'm calling for a reason I try to make my notes or emails out to them very detailed so they can make the decision on whether or not they need to contact me directly or if they can just, you know, send, send me an order and I can put it through. Uh, it works. The dynamics are good. Like right now, I think with COVID happening, communication tends to be uh, more of an intense thing because, you know, we're all so fast paced, but the way things are moving with my team I don't have any issues. They don't have any issues. I think we've already established that, you know, our communication is open and we're getting things done and our patients are, are surviving, hopefully, and, you know, going home. <laughs> there you go. With teamwork, 
makes yeah. the dream work, right? Exactly. <laughs> now, how has this experience uh, changed your life, Andrea? COVID or my disability or all of the above? Or just, just working in, in the COVID environment and, and, and having your, your job in, in, during this pandemic. How has this changed your life? Um, it's the proof, right? I don't know if it's so much changing my life because I already knew that I, I belonged there. It's what I strive for. It's what I prayed on. Um, this is where I wanted to be. So I feel at home in my environment right now. Um, so it's not so much a change for me, but I will say that I feel like me being on the floor, me getting the visibility, me being able to speak on the behalf of someone else with a disability that wants to be a nurse, like here I am being the game changer, right? There have been nurses before me in chairs that have had stories done on them, you know, they're out there in the world, but I am consistently speaking on this issue. You know, nursing schools cannot turn away people with disabilities. Hospitals and long-term care facilities or any place that hires a nurse should not be turning away nurses with disabilities because we are going to change the way the healthcare system actually treats everyone that actually has a diagnosis right the way that we communicate with our patients are completely different than the way someone who's able is coming in to treat a patient or anyone that's seeking health care and i think that dynamic is what's changing during this pandemic it's proving that we don't have to be physically present anywhere right telehealth all these things that they told us that we couldn't do mm -hmm. we're doing right um it waited until it affected all of the able of the world. And I put that in quotations, able, because at some point or another, we'll all have a disability. So now you're shining the light on the able being affected and having a disability at the end of the day versus the people who have had a disability, learned how to manage through all of that and are being successful in accomplishing things that were, they were told could never happen. I'm doing that in a field that looks down on us, you know? A colleague of mine, she's not even a nurse, she's a doctor, um, Farazana, here in New York. She's in Buffalo, New York, you know, Mount Sinai's praising her. She's a doctor in a wheelchair, right? Like, our outlook is completely different than everyone else's. And even to ourselves, our outlooks are different because we present with our disabilities differently. So we see things differently. We can see things and, and kind of put together a whole puzzle without actually seeing what the picture looks like. Right. And Absolutely. that's the game changer here. That's the real game changer is that you're actually taking the people who have lived this life for so long, who can put together some massive decisions in very short time frames because of how we are constantly evolving and thinking towards our own disability and how we're making it in the world and doing something that was told we could never do or couldn't do or couldn't be a part of. That's the change. Not so much my life change, but the change towards the entire disability community as a whole. Well said. Well said. Well spoken by Trailblazer right there. <laughs> and uh, what advice do you have for fellow wheelchair users who are struggling right now and concerned about their safety and well-being? You have every right to be concerned. You have every right to feel that you know your safety might be jeopardized don't discredit what you're feeling um, my best advice is to don't hold it in write it out see if you have some real valid uh, things to be worried about and address them who can you reach out to what organizations can help you you know don't settle for what one person says um, keep looking and if you feel like that answer is wrong or that answer just doesn't sit right with you don't settle at it you know you have a voice and use it and if you feel like you don't have a voice reach out to someone that has one and make them use it for you <laughs> there you go there you go well said now have you lost any close friends or family members due to COVID-19 because you are in in New York and there's a lot of cases over there anyone personally affected by it that you know? Thankfully, no. Um, 
you know, my mom works in a hospital setting. My aunt works in a hospital setting. Um, you know, aunts by marriage have family that works in nursing. So we set up a system way before our lockdown, way before, you know, things became more crazy where if we were coming in from work, even when school was still open, you know, things don't leave the front door. You know, you come in, we disrobe at the front door and then we, you know, my chair was being cleaned off in the car. Wow. You know, so there there were things that were being done before, you know, lockdown and quarantine and face masks happened. You know, we were trying to prevent being sick at all costs or, yeah. or getting it at all costs. So thankfully, you know, our measures have seemed to work out in our favor. I, I can say that I know friends who've lost family members, um, but I don't want to chalk that up to just having hygiene or disinfecting routines in place because I think that you can have as much of that as possible, but once you're exposed, you're exposed. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I, I see it every day at work. It's hard to see it. It's hard to watch someone take their last breath, especially at the rate that we're seeing it. Uh, and, you know, I, my heart's with everyone who's out there who's lost someone because it, this is not easy and people are losing people left, right, and center. And I'm just blessed to say that I have it and I, I hope I don't. And if I do, you know, I hope that they're there with a nurse that holds their hand through it. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, that brings up... Um a memory in my mind when I was working EMS field for my accident. And when you would have someone who would, would pass away, you know, during the moment, you know, you're, you're fixed and focused on trying to give that person care or comfort that person. But after the fact, I had to make sure I decompressed somewhere. And my, my outlet was, I was a songwriting musician at the time. That's where my fingers worked, but I used to go into our little studio and record and things like that. And that kind of cleared my mind, you know, helped me decompress. Mm-hmm. How do you decompress when you deal with a situation like that? Is there a special place you like to go? Any hobby out there to help you just to maintain some type of sanity? To be honest, everything here is locked down, right? So you're either on a line for an hour and a half trying to get into a store or you're in your local park trying to stay six feet away from people. So that's even stressful in itself. And, you know, after I've worked, 13 14 hour shift i don't really want to be around anyone and i want to sleep so decompression hasn't happened to its full capacity that i know that it should have um and i say that because i only have i have my pet my animal my little dog her name is Gigi. uh so Gigi's been my pet therapy on a consistent (laughs) very consistent basis uh for my decompression but honestly i uh I'm hoping for this to be over sooner rather than later so I can hop on a plane to somewhere very warm and sunny. Well, <laughs> hey. Yeah, I have Jeej to keep me going. Well, we'll welcome you to California. And when you when you come out to, to visit, I'll make sure to, to let you know what real hip-hop sounds like, okay? Oh, my God. Again, with this real <laughs> hip-hop. Listen, listen. Everyone knows the Notorious B.I.G., K.J.Z., Hold up, like we're not gonna play this game. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, before I let you go, I just wanted to ask you this one last question. Yeah. How do you see the next six months playing out? Ooh, okay. So I really hope that within the next two months we can start to get to the reopening phase in very slow motion. I do not wish for this to be, you know, another resurgence of COVID in four months when everyone's back to some type of normalcy, I think, or normalcy, right? However you want to say it. I think that's all right. We we make our own words. I'm good with it. I have a lot of words (laughs) I make up too, so go right ahead. Um, I think that it's an awakening for our community to see that they have potential they can take any job now and turn it remote. It's how hard they're gonna fight for that. Uh, I think that this pandemic, as much as a lot of things are on the chopping block right now and we need to have a voice behind that, Congress needs to also see that this shift was made in not even a week to get everyone remote, to get things that are non-essential to a remote space 
where people can work from home, all these jobs that they told us that we could never do, um, and to start holding these companies accountable to the law that says that you are not going to discriminate against my disability and that you will make a way for me be, to be able to do the job. So hopefully in six months, at the end of those six months, that these lawmakers, we're going to be in voting season. We're going to be, you know, new administration could be coming through. Um, you know, there's that there's a voice for our community that's so powerful. That's like, you are not going to forget us. You are not going to leave us out. Moving forward, we are going to be a part of that conversation. You know, hopefully we rally, <laughs> like really rally. <laughs> and, and Andrea, the, the seated nurse, we will never, ever forget you as well. Um, you're an incredible person, um, inspirational story, a, a hero, uh, you and your colleagues working during COVID-19, especially in New York. Um, our hats go off to you guys, wishing you guys the best. You guys are in our thoughts and prayers. And I'm going to send you a virtual hug because we have to social yes. distance, but I'm a virtual hug you and uh, <laughs> That can help you decompress too, but you're in our thoughts and prayers, my dear. Anything else out there? How can ones follow you? Because uh, your IG, I love it. Because you even did like a little um, glam one the other day. That was pretty yeah. cool. So <laughs> how can ones follow you on uh, on your social media? So I'm on Instagram as The Seated Nurse. Uh, you guys can find me on Facebook at Andrea Dalzell. Uh, and you'll find me, just type my name in Google. You'll find me, I promise. I'm never awesome. far away. <laughs> you, said search. you said search me. I got the I got the cred uh, to, to match. Just search me. You can find Just me. Search me up. Don't worry. I'll befriend anybody. Let's go. <laughs> there you go. Thank you so much. We look forward to chatting with you soon. That was the wonderful Andrea Dalzell joining us. And it's a very inspirational story out there. And before we let you go, I want to let you know that you can uh, definitely uh, check out our page for our COVID support page. It's unitedspinal.org slash COVID-support. So that's uh, unitedspinal.org slash COVID-support. So you can check out that page, talk about how you can help out our community during COVID-19. Until next time, folks, thank you so much for tuning in. Take care. They say that Brooklyn is the birth of hip hop. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask you. Whoa, 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 whoa. Angel is chiming in. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Did you say Brooklyn is the birthplace of hip hop? I mean, I didn't say that. I said you just say said it. that. No, wait, no. Who, wait okay. No, where would no. be the place? Of, where would be the birthplace of hip hop? We all know the birthplace of hip hop is the Bronx. The city of New York, Boricua from the Bronx. Visit our website www.unitedspinal.org. Connect with United Spinal on Twitter via United Spinal. Follow United Spinal Association on Facebook. Thanks for listening.